Well, one early April morning in 1964, Catherine Genevieve's came home from her night job, and she was attacked and repeatedly stabbed in front of her apartment building. Her cries for help went unheeded, even though 38 residents of her New York apartment witnessed the attack taking place for almost 20 minutes from their apartment windows, and yet no one even called the police. On January 26, 2001, something similar happened in San Francisco. There, Diane Whipple stepped off her elevator in her apartment building and was attacked by two large dogs that lived on her floor. And even though she reportedly screamed for over five minutes, no one opened the door to help or even bothered to call the police. From the East Coast to the West Coast, two tragic incidents had happened. And when all of these witnesses who had heard or observed these attacks taking place were asked, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you help? Why didn't you even just pick up the phone and call the police? Every one of them said, I thought somebody else would help. I thought somebody else would do it. How often is that our reaction when we hear of a need? Now, the situations may not be as serious, but when you hear of a need, how often do you think, well, somebody else is going to help? Somebody else is going to step in. Somebody else will do something here. Today, we're going to begin looking at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see that there was a man who was not willing to sit idly by on the sidelines and let somebody else help. Rather, Nehemiah was one who was willing to move from the sidelines to serving. And as we look at this book of Nehemiah, it parallels the times in which we live because the book of Nehemiah is about a period in Israel's history where the walls were broken down. And we live in a time in our society where, figuratively speaking, the walls of society have crumbled. The walls are broken down all around us. There are needs that we hear about in our schools, in our community, in the world around us, where the walls are in ruins. And we look around and wonder, why is nobody doing something? And so as we look at the book of Nehemiah, which I invite you to turn to, if you've never been in the book of Nehemiah, go to the middle of your Bible about the book of Psalms and go backwards. It's near there. Or if you're coming from the front of your Bible, you'll pass 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, then you'll hit Ezra and Nehemiah. And as we look at this book of Nehemiah today, as we begin this series, I want to give you the background. Now, it may sound a little bit like a history lesson, but it's important for you to understand the, the context in which Nehemiah was taking place, the events that were happening that led up to the book of Nehemiah. So beginning in 931 B.C., shortly after King Solomon died, remember David was king, his son Solomon took the throne, and then when King Solomon died, uh, the nation of Israel was split into two parts. When Rehoboam took over, the ten northern tribes formed the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and then the two southern tribes became Uh, the kingdom of Judah. And Israel had abandoned her worship and obedience to the one true God, Yahweh, and God warned them. God said that if they did not return to him, he would judge the nation. He would allow them to be taken into captivity. And that happened in 722 BC, when God allowed the Assyrians to conquer Israel. Now, the, the southern kingdom of Judah continued on for about 100 years. And they too turned from following after God, and he allowed the Babylonians to carry them away into captivity. 
Now, the Israelites of the northern kingdom had been absorbed into Assyria and the surrounding nations over their time of captivity, but God kept the southern kingdom of Israel intact in the Babylonian captivity. And at the appointed time, God raised up the media Persian Empire to defeat Babylon. And when that happened, he used a Persian ruler by the name of Cyrus to restore Israel to the land. And in 538 B.C., the first group of Jews returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. You can read about him in the book of Ezra there in the Old Testament. And after leading, uh, after facing great opposition for a number of years, they were able to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. In 515 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. And then 60 years later, there was a second group of Jews who returned under the leadership of Ezra. That happened in 458 B.C. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they found that the first wave of Jews who had returned to the land 60 years before had fallen back into the same degradation of the past. The people had begun to intermarry with the pagan nations around them. They had begun to turn away from God and following his ordinances. And Ezra called the people back to repentance. And through teaching God's word, uh, they repented and they returned to God. And then 14 years later, in 444 BC, is where the book of Nehemiah takes over. Because as we look at the book of Nehemiah, this is where he will return to Jerusalem. And so I invite you to look at this book with me. And as we do, I want you to understand this is not just about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. You may be sitting here this morning saying, well, that's wonderful. That was a historical event that happened, you know, back in 444 B.C. What does it have to do with me today? As we look at this book, what we're going to see is that it's a book about how to renew our own relationship with God. We're going to see that Nehemiah is a book about prayer. It's a book that will teach us how to be men and women of prayer. As we look at this book, we'll see that it's filled with lessons in leadership that apply from the classroom to the boardroom. This is a book that is very timely, very pertinent for all of us today. I invite you now to look with me at Nehemiah chapter 1 as we begin reading verses 1 through 2. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, in the capital that Uh, in Susa the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Now, as the book begins, we're told that Nehemiah is in Susa. This is the capital of the Persian Empire. Some of you have actually been there because you were deployed in the military recently. This is uh, right by the border of Iran and Iraq. It's actually in Iran, so I doubt you were actually in Susa, but you were close to it if you were serving in some of the theaters over there. And so as we look in terms of a modern map, that's where it is. And then verse 11 Uh, tells us that Nehemiah was there because he was, I'm sorry, verse 1 says he was the cupbearer to the king. Now, we're going to talk about this position for a moment, but I want to mention who the king is. This is King Artaxerxes. And if you've studied history, you know that there were actually three guys by the name of King Artaxerxes. This is Artaxerxes I. Historians also call him Artaxerxes Longamanus. And he is a, a guy who served from 464 to 423 B.C., And and what we see in verse 1 is that this picks up in the 20th year of his reign, which would have been 445 B.C. Remember, we're talking B.C., so this is counting down. You know, we count in A.D. where we go 1, 2, 3. B.C. goes 
from bigger to smaller. So as I'm saying these numbers, you need to recognize we're moving toward uh, 1 AD as we're going through this in this. And all of the, I'm, I'm telling you this because when we get to chapter 2, all of this dating that I'm about to talk about will be very important because you're going to see that it, it began uh, a prophetic clock with Daniel's 77s. And when we get to chapter 2, we'll talk about that specifically. But when we're told it's the 20th year, and then we're told it's the month of Chislev, and Chislev is November to December on our calendars. We're dealing with Jewish dating here. And we'll come back to the dates next week and what all this means. So let's talk about what it means to be the cupbearer to the king. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, does that mean he's like the dishwasher or the waiter? Is this the guy who comes around and kind of fills your water glass in the restaurant? Being a cupbearer to the king was actually a very high position within the government. The cupbearer was literally the right-hand man to the king. He was the guy that would drink all the libations. He would eat all the food before the king did. Because if somebody had tried to poison the king, well, the cupbearer would, would partake of the portion of the food, and he would die, but long live the king. So it was an important position. It was a very trusted position. And it tells you something about the character of Nehemiah, because remember, he's a foreign Jew. This is a Persian empire, and they've chosen him to be the guy that protects the life of the king. He not only sampled the food, but he was a bodyguard to the king because he was with the king everywhere. He was a, a close advisor. He was in on all the meetings. He was there in the palace. He was a guy that, that had the ear of the king and was a very key position. And so having this position tells you that he's there in the palace. He's living a life of luxury. He's eating wonderful food, drinking the best wine. He's living in opulence. So he's got a very cush life. And into this world, we see that suddenly Hananiah comes. And we're told in chapter 7, verse 2, that he's a blood brother of his. And so his, this guy shows up who's been over in Jerusalem, 800 miles away. And he comes back and Nehemiah says, hey, how are things back in Jerusalem? How are the people doing back home? And we read in verse 3, They said to me, The remnant there are in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. I want you to linger over those words for a moment. I want you to picture that scene. It says the city is desolate. It's destroyed. It's in rubble. The city's a mess. The people are in distress. God is being mocked. When we see the word reproach here, it's a word that means sharp, cutting, or penetrating. Remember that the, the nations would talk about how powerful a God was by how well the nation or the people were doing. And so all the pagans that are surrounding Jerusalem are going, look at your God. He's weak. He's powerless. Does he even exist? Your city's in ruin. And so Nehemiah hears not only about the condition of the people, but also of the mockery that's happening toward God. And verse 4 tells us, Now it came about when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I wonder when the last time is that you heard about God being dishonored. Or his work not being done, and you wept. 
Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, used to pray, may my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. May my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. You know, I mentioned the walls of our society are in ruins. It's no secret that Christianity is mocked. He's not welcome in the schools, in the workplace, the legislation, the laws that are coming about are are taking more and more freedoms away. And as you hear about the stuff that's happening in our society, how does that make you feel? As Christians, you may say, well, I don't like it because it's taking away my freedoms and various things. I'm concerned. But is the thing that concerns you most how it's affecting you or what's being said of God and how he's being mocked, how he's being ridiculed? People say he's weak and powerless or doesn't exist. Does your heart break because of the way that God is being reproached? When is the last time you could say your heart was broken over the things that grieve God? It may have been an injustice that someone suffered, a situation involving sin. It could be something that happened that you felt like you just couldn't ignore it. Think about that. When is the last time that happened to you? When was the last time where you had your heart broken to the point that you just didn't feel a passing pain or sympathy that maybe you see when something's on TV and you quickly change the channel or you're reading an article on the Internet so you click to the next one or you're in a newspaper or magazine, you just kind of set it aside because, you know, it just bothers you. I'm not, I'm not talking even about that. I'm, I'm talking about when is the last time that something bothered you so much that you actually moved to do something about it? Or you said, I, I, I just can't let this go on without getting involved and doing something about it. There was a young boy who went to the store one day. This was back in the days when milk was still in glass bottles. And he was warned by his mom, listen, this is the last of the money we have. And we need you to bring this milk home for the the littlest ones in the house. And you have to be very careful because we don't have any more money to last to the end of the month. So the boy went to the store. He bought a couple of bottles of milk. And as he was coming out of the store, uh, he was walking along. And then he tripped and fell. And as he did, the, the, the bottles crashed to the sidewalk. They shattered. The milk spilled everywhere. This little boy started crying. And a crowd of people come running up. They think maybe the boy has cut himself. He's been hurt. He's there crying. And they they pick him up. They look at him. Are you okay? Are you bleeding? Are you fine? And the little boy says, I'm okay. I'm okay. He said, but the milk. He said, that was all the money we had. My mom told me to be careful, and I dropped it, and we don't have any money. And everybody started saying, we're so sorry. That's terrible. And as the crowd was offering their sympathy to the boy, one of the men standing there reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a dollar. And he hands it to the boy. And as he does so, he turns to the crowd and he said, I care a dollar's worth. How much do you care? When I ask, do you care about something? Are you willing to get involved? Are you willing to have skin in the game? I want you to remember as Nehemiah hears this news where he is, he's sitting in the lap of luxury. He's in the palace. This is his brother. These are other friends that are there telling him how bad things are in Jerusalem. And he says, man, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry to hear how things are. You know what? I'm going to make this a point of prayer. I'm going to put this on my list. I'm going to pray about it. And good luck when you guys go home. Is that what Nehemiah does? And we're going to talk about how important prayer is, but we're going to see that Nehemiah doesn't just pray about it. 
But he says, I've got to get involved personally in what's happening. As, as we read here, it says, he sat down, he wept, and he mourned for days, and he was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, remember, he's the cupbearer to the king. He has to sample all the food and drink. So when we're told he's fasting, he still has a job to do. But what happens is after he's done the ceremonial tasting, he doesn't sit down and enjoy the sumptuous feast and, and you know eat till he's full. What he's doing is he withdraws, he goes to a room, and he takes the time that he would have spent eating and other things, and he's, he's on his face praying. He's, he's entreating God. And, and we're told here that uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, we saw that it was Chislev, which you'll remember is November to December. And when we get to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, there you see that it's the month of Nisan, which means it's March to April. Nehemiah isn't just praying for a day or two about this. He prays and fasts for four straight months. Four months. He's on his face praying and asking for God to work Before Nehemiah ever makes the 800-mile journey and moves the first stone, he begins to work on the wall right there through prayer. You know, there's a saying, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. Do you believe that? When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. Nehemiah believed it. And he began to work on the wall here from 800 miles away as he's already at work praying Now, I gave you all that history about Jerusalem and the destruction and the captivity and various things. The walls of Jerusalem at this point have been broken down for 142 years. 142 years. The walls have been broken down. The ruins are there. Zerubbabel and Ezra have already returned, as I told you. 50,000 other Jews have already returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls. They were able to complete the temple. They began to work on the the infrastructure and on the walls. And walls in that day were very important because that's how a city was protected. Jerusalem is surrounded by enemy nations. And without the walls, they're, they're sitting ducks for anybody around. And as they began to rebuild the walls, what the pagan enemy said is, once Jerusalem is fortified, we will not have as easy a chance of coming in and re. Uh, conquering this area. So what they did was they sent word back to the king and said, hey, king, I know that you said they could do this, but do you know that as soon as they finish building the walls, they're going to rebel against you? They spread false rumors saying, once the Jews have fortified the city, they're going to rebel against you. So King Artaxerxes said, hey, you guys need to stop working on the walls. And so as you read the other Old Testament books, it tells us that the decree came and said, cease the work. There's a conspiracy, the king was told, once the walls are are built. So put yourself in the place of Nehemiah. Now you have the king believing that the walls are trying to be rebuilt so they can rebel against you. What's going to happen when Nehemiah, his trusted advisor, his bodyguard, this guy who is there with him night and day in the palace says, hey, king, we'd like to rebuild rebuild the walls of the city. The king is going to say, are you a co-conspirator? Are are, are you part of the rebellion that's taking place? Nehemiah can literally lose his life. The king can say, well, you're, you're an enemy of mine now. Not only lose his job, but lose his very life. And this is what's on the line here. It would have been so easy for Nehemiah as he hears about what's happening there to say, number one, this is just too dangerous. 
As soon as I go to the king, I'm going to get killed. So I can't do it. Or, you know, it's, it's been broken down for 142 years. There are 50,000 other Jews that returned and couldn't get the walls built. What can I do? I'm one person. What, what am I going to be able to do in this whole situation? Have you ever had something like that happen with you? You look at the brokenness in society around you, and, and you go, what can I do? I'm just one person. Can I really make a difference? You, you look at what's happening in your schools, your workplace, in the military, where you serve. Uh, it happens in your neighborhood, and you look around and you say, I'm just one person. It's too big of a thing for me. This has been going on. Society has been declining for decades, if not longer. So what, what can I do? Can I really make a difference? Like rebuilding the walls here. It may be too big for you, but it's not too big for God. And Nehemiah knew that. He said, this is too big for me, but it's not too big for my God. You know, last week we heard a great sermon from Jason where he talked about God's sufficient grace and his power. And he, and he reminded us that when we are weak, then we're strong through God and his power. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? And do you really believe when we pray that God works? And we say, yeah, I believe that, but do we really believe it by what we do? And as we look at Nehemiah here, we see that it was too big for him, but it was not too big for God, so he goes to God in prayer. And this is something we all need to do. Whether it's helping to rebuild broken walls in our society, being a part of helping build uh, somebody's broken life, rebuild their broken life, we, we may say, I can't do anything about this. But my God can, and my God is big enough to handle it. If you find yourself facing a need that looks too big for you, don't give up. Rather, give it to God. Give it to God in prayer. Go to him as Nehemiah does. As we go through this book of Nehemiah, we're going to see that he was a man who was constantly going to God in prayer. The book of Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. And in 13 chapters, we're going to see Nehemiah go to God 12 times in prayer. Twelve different times we will find Nehemiah on his knees. And as we look here at verses 5 through 11, we find the first of his prayers. It says, And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eye upon thy uh, open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants. Now, in the past, we've, we've talked about prayer and various ways to do it. And you've heard me use the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. And A stands for adoration. It said whenever we go to God in prayer, we need to start not with our list of requests. That's the S of supplication in ACTS. But so many times we just go to God right away, right, with our shopping list. But instead, we need to start with adoration, focusing on who God is, praising him for who he is. Not only does it set our mind right in terms of honoring God and not just saying, hey, give me, give me, give me, but it also helps us to understand he is indeed a big enough God to handle whatever it is we're asking for. That's the A of adoration. Then there's the C of confession. We need to come with clean hands and hearts before God. And then T is thanksgiving. We need to thank God for who he is, how he's answered prayers in the past, what he's done in our life, before we finally get to the S of supplication. And as we look at this prayer here, you see that Nehemiah begins with adoration. 
He focuses on God, his position, and praises him. And he uses a title here calling him the God of heaven. Now, if you read through the Old Testament books of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, you're going to see this title, God of Heaven, used over and over. And all of those books that I just mentioned were written after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And the reason that they're focusing on God's position in heaven is not only that's who he is and where he is, but it's also because they, they no longer had this reminder of God's physical presence here on earth. You remember when the temple was built, when the tabernacle was, was initially built under Moses and the instructions given as Israel wandered in the wilderness, God had manifested his physical presence to the people through a pillar of fire and a cloud as he led them through the wilderness. When the, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the, the, the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God descended upon the temple. It said that the smoke and fire was so intense that it drove people out. When the physical temple was built there in Jerusalem, the same thing happened. The glory of God was manifest in the temple. But then there came a point where that was withdrawn. As you read in 1 Samuel 4.21, it says, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken. And so what happens is the people now focus on him as the God of heaven because they say there is no longer a physical manifestation of God's presence here on earth with us. But because of God's great love for us, he returned to dwell among us. We see that in the New Testament in the book of Matthew. As we're told in Matthew one twenty three. it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. God took on flesh and blood. He literally tabernacled, is what the, the Bible says, among us. He, he took on earthly form and he pitched his earthly tent here among us as we saw the manifestation of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. He dwelt with men. He walked among us. And he took on flesh and blood so he could ultimately go to the cross to take on our sin, to shed his blood, to become the sacrifice, to become the payment of our sins. Our sin had separated us from God, but when Christ came as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, he shed his blood to be the sacrifice and restore the broken relationship that had come about because of our sin. And God has given us the privilege of approaching him in heaven through our relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, when we receive Jesus as our Savior, the Bible says that we are made children of God. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You can become an adopted son, an adopted daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are welcomed into the family through our relationship with Jesus. And it's through our relationship with Jesus that we get to talk to God in prayer. Jesus, you'll recall, taught the disciples to pray. When you pray, he said, say, our Father. Literally, Daddy, Abba. We get to come before the God of heaven as father, as daddy, based upon the relationship that we have through the son, Jesus. And as children, we have a heavenly father who cares for us, and he can help us in those times where we have a need much bigger than us. Think of the story of a, a little boy who was in the backyard playing in a sandbox. As he was digging around in the dirt, his, his fingers hit something hard, and he started to dig and uncover it, and he, he found the tip of a rock. 
And as he kept digging, he, he saw this was a big rock, and he starts uncovering more and more of it. And as he uncovered it, he sees it's this really big rock, and he, he, he tried to lift it to get it out of the sandbox, but it was too heavy. So then he starts kicking at it with his feet, and it doesn't really move. So he puts his back against the, the edge of the sandbox, and he pushes with both feet, and he was able to kind of move the rock a little, but he, he still couldn't get it out because every time he put his, his fingers underneath to try to lift it out, it would, it would fall back down, and it would crush his little chubby fingers. And, and so as the more he tried to pull and push and do this, he finally got so frustrated with the whole thing that he just burst out into tears. And as he was sitting there crying, suddenly this shadow falls over him. The little boy looks up to see what's casting the shadow, and his father's standing there. And, and the father says, son, why, why didn't you, you know, use the power you had to get that thing out of the sandbox? And he, he you know, his tears streamed down his cheeks. He said, daddy, I did. I used all the power I had. I just couldn't move it. I used all the power I had. And the father gently corrected him and said, no, son, you didn't. You didn't come and ask me for help. And with that, the father reached down and he picks up the rock and he just tossed it aside very easily. Friends, are you facing a need in your life, a problem that you think is just impossible to deal with? You're saying, "I've, I've done everything I know how to do, Roger. I've done it all. I've used every bit of power I've had. Have you really? Have you gone to your heavenly father? Have you gone to God and asked your daddy for help in order to remove what it is you're dealing with? You know, as Nehemiah is dealing with this, he says it's too big of a need for me, but it's not too big for my God. As he involves God in the process, the problem will shrink down to the right size, one that he knows God can handle. Because notice what Nehemiah prays here. He says, not only are you the God of heaven, he says, you are the great and awesome God. Nehemiah says, not only are you big and powerful, he says, you're faithful. Notice that he he talks about God being faithful, and he uses the covenant name Yahweh. Yahweh. Whenever you look at your English Bible and you see the word Lord in all capital letters, do you see that in your text? When you see L-O-R-D in all capitals, that tells you that it's the holy name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. The Tetragrammaton is what it's called. This is God's highest holy name. And so what he's doing is he's reminding him of who God is. He's Yahweh. I am the one who, notice he says, you are the covenant-keeping God, the one who preserves the covenant and loving kindness. He uses another very important rich word here for loving kindness. It's hesed. It's actually chesed, if you say it the right way. It's not like a cat coughing up a hairball. It's not real pretty for us. But it's a beautiful word because it means God's loyal love, his loving kindness, his covenant. It says when we are faithless, When we are disobedient, God is faithful. When we give up on God, he doesn't give up on us. God has made a covenant with us, and he will keep his covenant. And as he speaks of God's loyal love, notice that he acknowledges why Israel and Judah suffered. He says, we went into captivity as a consequence of our sin. He says, the destruction of the city and the people was right to happen because we were unfaithful. How many times do you hear people talking about if God was real, if God was powerful, if God was love, then all this stuff in the world wouldn't happen? Maybe you've thought it yourself. 
And we blame God for what's happening in the world and the consequences of our sin. And what God says is, I've warned you. I've told you when you disobey, when you're unfaithful, when you turn your back on me, I'm going to turn away from you. I will not reject you, but I will send you out into a time of discipline. Read the book of Judges. Hundreds of years of a cycle where the people sinned and they went into a time of slavery and then they cried out in supplication and God sent a savior, a judge to redeem them. And then there was a period of silence and redemption and then they sinned and it started over, over and over. And that's the world we live in and we blame God and what God says is, this is your fault. There's a cause and effect relationship here. And notice that as Nehemiah is praying here, he acknowledges that. As you look at verses, the second part of verse 6 through 10, as Nehemiah prays, he says, Be attentive, and thy eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants. We talked about adoration. Here's the sea of confession. He says, Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, I and my father's household, because we have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. This has happened. But then Nehemiah goes on, and he prays the promises of God back to him. He says, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the, in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Nehemiah is quoting from Leviticus 26 in the book of Deuteronomy here where God promised blessing for obedience and, and curses and consequences for disobedience. And what he's saying is, God, you are holy, you are just, you are right to bring judgment upon us. We are the cause of the things that we're suffering. He says, but in spite of our unfaithfulness, God, you are faithful. You are this loving, covenant-keeping, hesed God. You are, I am Jehovah, Yahweh. You are all powerful. And God, you said you would, you would not forget us even if we forgot you. And so he's praying these promises back. And as he, do so, as he does so, this is what he's basing his entreating on. He's confessed his sins. I love the story of Norman Vincent Peale. He said when he was just still a young man. He was in the back alley behind his house one day, and as he was kind of walking around the alley, he, he saw a cigar laying there. The cigar was still in its wrapper. It was wrapped up in plastic, and as a young boy, he picks it up, and he, he looks at it, and he smells it, and he unwraps it, and he sticks it in his mouth, and, you know, he's kind of feeling all grown up with this big cigar, this stogie sticking out of his mouth, and as he's doing that, he decides he's actually going to light it up. So he gets a match and, and he lights his cigar and as soon as he does, he starts hacking and wheezing. He's, you know, this thing tastes terrible, but he feels real grown up. And as this is taking place, suddenly he notices the gate on the fence opens and his father comes walking out into the alley. Now, Norman Vincent Peale says he took this cigar out of his mouth and, and he didn't know what to do, so he holds it behind his back. 
And as his father walks up on him, he's desperate to divert his daddy's attention, and he notices his billboard that's advertising the circus coming to town. And so he, he points up at the billboard, still with this smoking stogie behind his back, right? And he says, Dad, Dad, look, the circus. He said, can we go? Can we go to the circus, Daddy? And he said his father taught him a lesson he, he never forgot. He said his, his dad looked him in the eye and he said, Son, never make a request while you're hiding a smoldering disobedience. Right? <laughs> Friends, how many times do we do that with God? How many times do we come and we say, Daddy, Father, God, do this for me. I want this. Could you on and on? And the whole time we have this smoking sin, so to speak, behind our back. God sees it all. He knows us. And so as we look at what Nehemiah prays here, before he comes with his request, he deals with his sin. He deals with his sin personally. He deals with his father's sin. He deals with the nation's sin. He, he doesn't say, God, I want you to do these things. Instead, what he does is he confesses his sin. And, and he confesses out of his father's house and then the corporate sin of the nation. And we see the same thing happening in Daniel chapter 9. There Daniel did this. We see it in Ezra chapter 9 as Ezra did this. Each of these godly men came and said, I have sinned. My fathers have sinned. Our nation has sinned. They confess their sins before they come before God with their requests. They recognize he is holy. He is just. There's cause and effect. We are the cause of so many of the consequences through the things that we've done, our disobedience. And you may say, well, I haven't done it. Society has done it. Well, we see Nehemiah corporately confessing the sin of the nation. You know, they don't try to justify themselves. They don't try to compare themselves and say, well, God, Jerusalem's there. These are your people, your city. The walls are broken down. Yeah, they've kind of made some, you know, messes and things. But think about the pagans all around God. They're much worse. God doesn't grade on a curve, brothers and sisters. God has a standard. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. His standard is perfection. He doesn't grade on a curve. And and Jesus talked about that. In, In Luke chapter 18 and verses 10 through 14, Jesus talked about the people who pray where they say, well, I'm better than than those other people. There he says in Luke 18.10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. Now remember, the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. These are the self-righteous, outwardly religious-looking leaders. And then he says the other one's a tax gatherer. Remember, these are the worst of the worst. They were at the bottom rung of society. These were the traitors, the people who stole from their own people for Rome. And so Jesus sets up this scenario. You have what people think is the best and the worst. And he says, these two guys are praying. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, not to God, thus to himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was unwilling to even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast and he was saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. When you go to God in prayer, do you go with confession? 
Do you say, God, I'm a sinner? I've blown it. I've made mistakes. The word confession is the Greek word homo legeo. It literally means to say the same thing as God says. It means that we say, God, I recognize you are holy and perfect and just. No sin can be in your presence. I, as a sinner, am not worthy to be in your presence, but I come through the shed blood of your son who washed me white as snow, who washed away my sins. Is that how you approach God? When you do that, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you're thinking, well, Roger, my sins are huge. They're numerous. I'm not even worthy to stand in his presence. None of us are based upon who we are. And Satan wants us to believe that, that God is done with you. He doesn't want you around because of the mistakes you've made. But what the Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8 is God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Positionally, we have no right to stand before God based upon who we are. But as being seen through the washed blood of Jesus, that's why we're there. Remember, we're children of God, but as many as received him, to them we have the right to become children of God. And he calls us sons and daughters based upon the blood of his son, Jesus. And so we've seen Nehemiah pray with adoration, confession. The thanksgiving part of the prayer has been where he reminds God and thanks God for you being a covenant-keeping God, one who is loyal even when we are disloyal. And then he finally gets to the S of supplication where he makes his request known. This is where we share our need. and, And God is our father. Our daddy wants to hear those requests. But remember, prayer is not about us. And what we need or want, it's about God and what his will, what his plan is. It's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not my will, not my wants. It's God, your plan, your will to be done. And in this prayer, Nehemiah models that for us, and he also focuses fully on it's not about him. As you look through this prayer, you will find that the names and personal pronouns of God are used 44 times. 44 times Nehemiah puts the focus on God rather than on himself and his needs. Only now in verse 11 does he come with his request. He says, O Lord, I beseech thee, May thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servant who delights to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's speaking of Artaxerxes, the king. And then he says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah mentions his position here again because what he's saying is I'm willing to give it all up, God. I will give up the luxury of the palace. I will give up the prestige of my position. And if necessary, God, I will even give up my life. If I go before the king and he's displeased with me and he says, you will die for this request, then so be it. Which is why Nehemiah says, God, would you change the heart of the king? Would you prepare him to hear this request? Would you make him favorable to what I'm about to ask? Do you pray prayers like that? When we look at our politicians, the, the laws that are being passed, when you have a, a teacher in a classroom, a professor at college that mocks your faith as a believer, when you have a commander on the base, when you have somebody in your family who laughs at you because you're a Christian, do you pray, God, would you change the heart of this person in authority? 
The Bible tells us to pray for those who are in authority over us. Do you do that? If you don't like the leaders that we have, are you praying that God would change them to be the godly men and women they need to be, to be those who pass right and just laws that will affect all of us? Nehemiah is doing this. He's praying that the heart of the king would be changed. And as we think of Nehemiah's prayer here for a change in the heart of the king, as we end today, I want you to ask yourself, there are things you need to change in your heart or life. Are there things you need to change in the way that you pray? Do you need to come with more boldness? Do you need to come with more faith where you say, I believe, God, you're who you say you are, this great and awesome and powerful God and holy God? Are you a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who prays big prayers like Nehemiah is praying here? Nehemiah knew that it was impossible for him to do these things, but with his God, all things were possible. Do you believe that? And if you do, do you get down on your knees and do you ask God to change the world in which we live? Do you ask God to change you, to make you a personal instrument that he can use for change in the world in which we live? As we close in prayer today, I want you to join me as we pray as Nehemiah did. I want to actually begin with the words that Nehemiah prays here. So will you bow your head and pray this prayer with me? O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and the loving kindness for those who love you and keep your commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eye open to hear the prayer of your servants, which we are praying now before you. We ask God that you would make us men and women, boys and girls who follow hard after you. Would you give us hearts that are broken by the things that grieve you, God? Lord God, we ask now that you would give us your heart and your power as we go into the world around us to serve you. We pray this in the name of the precious Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we serve and whom we have the privilege of approaching you through his shed blood. In Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen.